Welcome to another episode of Good Value by Antipodes. Global equities rose for the quarter despite the uncertainty following the largest bank failure since the 2008 financial crisis. Index performance was saved by Megacat Tech, as the market bets we're on the cusp of the Fed pivot. Notwithstanding this rotation in sector preferences, the Antipodes global portfolios outperformed the index. In this episode of the Good Value podcast, I'm joined by Antipodes CIO, Jacob Mitchell. As well as our broader outlook for global equities, we're going to discuss Fed policy. The pivot is coming, but will it come as quickly as the market predicts? And we'll also delve into three stocks that represent good opportunities in the current environment and touch on emerging pressure points. Jacob, welcome. It's great to have you back on the podcast. Thanks, Alison. As always, it's great to be here. Let's start with Fed policy. As we exited 2022, our view was that the Fed was already running policy too tight, given the pace of interest rate hikes combined with the pace of QT. And and the risk was that the Fed would drag the US economy into an even deeper recession. Recent events with the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank could tighten the screws further. Can the Fed still engineer a soft landing? Yeah, look, it's a it's a good good question. I mean, investors shouldn't, you know, underestimate the amount of tightening that's that's already in the system. I mean, the policy rate in the US was close to zero just a year ago versus five percent today. You know, the pace of increase in the Fed funds rate, you know, is one of the fastest in history. On top of this money, you know, money supply in the US is now contracting um, as a result of, you know, QT. And that's also a fairly, you know, a fairly negative impulse. Um, as the Fed is shrinking its balance sheet at a, you know, at a much faster rate than the previous attempt at QT, you know, between 2015 and 19. Conditions, you know, were already very tight without any fallout, you know, from the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank. And, uh, and look, we, we're yet to see that its impact on, on credit creation. So our view was that the recent you know, 25 basis point hike would represent the peak in the tightening cycle. Now, it looks like there could be one more, but you know, we're getting very close to the peak. So then the question is, you know, what next? And um, you know, we think um, you know, inflation will come down. Um, but the question, I think, you know, that we need to think about in terms of a pivot is what type of pivot do we get? Um, you know, is it, is it going to be a, a positive one where the Fed starts to acknowledge what we think is, you know, a policy error, you know, that, that they've, they've been setting policy, you know, using the rear view mirror, using, you know, what is a lagging indicator, i.e. employment, um, as their, their key input to, to setting rates. Now, we understand why they're doing that, because they're concerned about tightness in the labour market feeding into the service sector inflation. But there is, you know, there's real signs in the leading indicators that um, the economy is softening relatively quickly and unemployment is, is set to rise. So, that, you know, is it going to be one where the Fed really starts to, to loosen preemptively? Or is it going to be a negative pivot, i.e. the Fed tightens, pauses, but, you know, stays too tight for too long and uh, that uh, economy, you know, feeds into unemployment and we, you know, we really start to see 
weakness in profits and uh, that's and and you know it's it's not until you're really into the earnings downgrade cycle and until that earnings downgrade cycle really starts to mature um, and then the Fed starts to ease that you find the bottom in the market um, and it's it's worth adding even with a pivot um, there's no real guarantee that long-term rates will fall given the size of the budget deficit and along with the debt ceiling uh, issues um, so that you know, the, the U.S. Treasury needs to fund that deficit at the same time, you know, which means it needs to issue bonds, and at the same time, the Fed's adding to that issuance supply via QT. So we, we really need to see, um, you know, to get the soft landing scenario, we need to see a fundamental reversal in Fed policy, and um, and that's you know we, we we're not seeing that yet. And with high, you know, with yields where they are today, you can make the case that uh, where PEs are, there's not a, there's no real margin of error, you know, i.e., that the equity risk premium is actually is quite low. You know, it's not, um, there's not really a lot of room to move in markets. Mm. Now, you mentioned ramifications of of the collapse in Silicon Valley Bank. Fortunately, the bank's demise hasn't destabilised the US banking system. Well, well, certainly not so far. How could Silicon Valley Bank's failure impact the real economy? Yeah, look, you know, it, it really shed, you know, shone the light on on capital ratios. Um, and um, look, capital ratios in the US tend to be somewhat overstated because of the unrealised losses in bond portfolios. Now, there are some banks that are worse than, than others, but simple numbers to highlight this, the average tier one capital ratio in the US bank on a mark-to-market basis is, you know, is closer to eight to nine percent, you know, which, which is quite low in a, in a global context. And these ratios are dynamic. You know, the value of bond holdings are an asset on the balance sheet, and as yields go up, the value of that asset, asset goes down and you know, vice, vice versa. But the point remains, US banks aren't as well capitalised as they appear to be on paper. Um, so what does it mean? Even if regulation doesn't tighten, um, it's, you know, those regional banks will be you know, quite focused on risk management and liquidity you know, rather than credit creation. So we're going to see pressure on bank profitability as well as deposits reprice and you know, there's more competition for customer deposits. A high cost of funding you know, would be manageable if, if most lending was at variable rates, like it is in most banking markets. But in the US, almost you know, 60% of lending is at fixed rates, and the duration is generally above five years. So that asset liability mismatch is more extreme in the US than in most banking markets. So... If we think about the cost of or cost of deposits today, um, you know they're, they're still quite low. You know, um, there's been there hasn't been a lot of repricing against where Fed fund rates is at five percent and w- what you can get on a on a money market fund in the U.S. and that's that's the concern. Deposit rates will have to close for the banks to keep deposits. They'll have to close that gap on um, on money market funds. And as they do that, that puts pressure on net interest margins and banking profitability. And that's, that's really the essence of what's happening here in the US. It's, it's, a, it's a profit squeeze. It's a net interest margin squeeze that's taking place against 
you know, against a system that, you know, isn't surplus capital because of these uh, mark-to-market issues and also because buybacks have historically been pretty aggressive in the States. Um, so we, we estimate that a, a 100 basis point rise in deposit rates, um, you know, from, you know, from the current level of around 1.5%, would impact, would bring ROEs down by roughly a third so from you know just over from over twelve percent to to roughly eight percent, so that's a that's a big structural change in the profitability of the U.S. banking system, and we don't think that's that's sort of factored in. So when bank executives start to see that coming through, we think that will make them you know quite cautious around lending, and and you know credit conditions will become they're they're tight and they'll become tighter. And regional banks are important to the U.S. economy, aren't they? They account for 40% of total credit in the US system. But an area that we've been watching quite closely is their disproportionate importance to the commercial real estate sector. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's right. I mean, regional you know, banking in America is quite different to how we think about it. There's, there's, it's very, it's very fragmented. Um, it's not the big brand names that are, you know, who are lending, you know, to the small businesses. Um, it's it's sort of smaller banks, regional banks, and um, look, we define a regional bank as a bank that has less than a hundred billion in assets. And in in the in regards to commercial real estate, as you mentioned, they they're supplying roughly forty percent of the total credit to to that sec, you know, to total debt funding of of commercial real estate, and uh, and, and that's a sector that has already has. Uh, you know, there are there are areas of stress. You've got areas like office um, and more economically sensitive parts of commercial real estate that are starting to either never really recovered from from COVID or um, are just starting to see the the stress of a, of a slowing economy. And you you also have fairly high leverage rates, especially in properties that are owned in private market you know, in private market vehicles and, uh, and a high, relatively high degree on, on vari- variable funding where you've had the big sh- rate shock. You know, and then on top of that, you've got this issue of the regional banks sort of being a lot more cautious, being a key funder of the sector and being a lot more cautious around funding, which will mean they'll be very circumspect about refinancing and they'll be looking to, you know, they'll be looking for the owners of of commercial real estate to effectively put in more equity, i.e., you know, greater, you know, better collateral, or um, let's call it, you know, more higher, like a higher lending rate, in order to compensate for for the pressure that they're under in their um, in their own funding. Um, so, look, there's what's the way out here to the to the extent this becomes more systemic um it would be you know clearly to you know it's it's to cut rates for the fed to loosen policy are you surprised that given the pace of tightening we haven't seen more stress in credit and equity markets and the broader u.s economy cracks cracks are appearing in pockets like manufacturing and construction but the u.s economy remains relatively resilient held up by services and a household that's been shielded from higher rates due to fixed rate mortgages. 
And we're also in an era of fiscal activism. The more pressure tightening places on the economy, the greater the likelihood policymakers respond with more fiscal stimulus. So how should investors weigh all of this up? Look, it's a, it's a, you know, interesting, isn't it? Because if you, if you listen to um, a lot of the top, top down commentary, you know, it's, it's the majority of it seems relatively, you know, relatively bearish. I mean, arguably we're, we're all looking at the same leading indicators and, you know, outside of China and the emerging world, they look pretty, pretty bleak. Um, and then you, you know, you have the, the bottom up analysts forecasts and, you know, that's surprising that they're still, you know, the earnings estimates for the US are, are flat. So, there's a bit of a disconnect between the the top down and and the and the bottom up, and you know, and companies are probably not yet sort of seeing it in their in their own, you know, starting to see it in pockets as you mentioned, um, and there is some pressure on margins that we've seen in you know in the last in the December results margins came down, but top line was pretty pretty good, so at the moment it's it's sort of being corporates are passing on costs. To their customers, and that's one of the problems the Fed has, right? It's that's why it's staying, you know, fairly hawkish because it, it knows it probably has to impact profits to loosen employment to ultimately, you know, bring inflation back into the the so-called safe zone. So, look, how do how do you sort of how do you bring that? How do you resolve that? If you like that disconnect, um, it's probably just keeping in mind that you know, policy or monetary policy definitely always you know acts with a lag. So we haven't seen the full effect of the current tightening. And look, we think we we start to see that as this year, you know, matures as this and uh, and we go into twenty twenty four. You mentioned fiscal activism as sort of a good way to describe the current regime and the regime we've been in arguably since about, you know, since 2018 with the Trump tax cuts and the, you know, when, when, when we were close to full employment in the US. So that, that, that range of outcomes, you know, is still very wide. So um, we think that broader backdrop, backdrop, macro backdrop in the US look and the West broadly looks a lot like the the 30s or the 70s and 80s, where you had a lot more volatility in policy, which drove a lot more volatility in the economic cycle. And, you know, guess what? I mean, that that really weighed on equity multiples, um, a combination of of arguably more, you know, higher higher rates, but also probably more importantly, just more volatility drove the clearing multiple on the S&P down to on a on a cyclically adjusted basis in the 70s and 80s it averaged around 11 times and that cape multiple today is 28 times so the challenge we see with you know US equities is starting valuations are quite elevated and the earnings downgrade cycle isn't hasn't really it was only just getting started you know and we um, you know we think there's probably you know, ten to fifteen percent downside, which on earnings, which would take the the current year multiple from roughly nineteen times to you know over twenty times, which is you know it's a decent premium, especially it's you know especially relative to where bond yields are. So that you know their equity risk premium is quite low, no no margin of error. Um, so yeah, look, we uh, 
yeah, that, that's a good summary, I think, of where we, we think the US is at uh, and uh, where, yeah, we're, we're watching things relatively closely. We, we, we're, we're very aware that it's, you know, you don't want to get too caught up in your own echo chamber. You know, you need to be very open to out, you know, outside views. Certainly, you know, and certainly as data comes in, we'll be very sensitive to data that, you know, disproves our base case. Uh, so, and that, you know, that's clearly data that would be, you know, let's call it dovish, very dovish inflation data, which would allow the Fed to start to preemptively, you know, ease and you you end up with the positive pivot scenario. Mm. Okay, so so far we've, we've focused on the US. Let's turn to the other major economic blocks. How are Europe and China broadly placed? In, in simple terms, to put it in context of our portfolio, you know, we are overweight, you know, both of those regions. But I think it's very important to, you know, in the case of, you know, Europe, um, you know, where the outlook is getting, you know, I think incrementally positive, but let's face it, they're going through their own tightening policy yeah, cycle and arguably they're a little bit behind the US. Um, but we think you don't have, arguably you don't have as big an issue in the banking sector in terms of competition for, for deposits um, and you don't have as much fixed rate lending because in, in Europe, uh, unlike the US, the mortgages tend to sit in the banking system and they are, you know, they're much lower, long, shorter term, they're, they're predominantly variable rate mortgages. So as, as policy rates go up and as banks lift deposit rates, they can actually reprice their lending and protect margin and their starting capital positions are, are stronger uh, and regulation has been tighter. And, and as long-suffering bank shareholders in Europe would attest, they've only just started to do buybacks. So that's, that's, that's a good position to be in. And uh, we think they can you know, get through. You know, that, that will mean that they won't tighten their lending as aggressively as we think it will happen you know, in the US. But most importantly, you know, the starting multiple is, is 13 times, not, you know, not you know, close to 20 times. So a big difference in starting valuation. Importantly, what we own in Europe is actually, you know, we do have, you know, some positions in European banks, but we've, you know, we've been benefiting from outperformance there and we have been tapering those positions. The majority of what we own in Europe is actually, you know, the, the big overweight is, is, ver is very much driven by multinationals. Arguably, our European portfolio is not very European. And, uh, and I think that's an important thing, you know, it's important to understand that. Uh, in China, it's different. In China, we do have, you know, what we own in China, there's a lot of obviously ch exposure to Chinese, you know, economy. And um, we see this real dichotomy, dichotomy in outcomes where you're actually seeing the Chinese economy, you know, accelerate and respond to the easing that started over 12 months ago. So it's going in the opposite direction to what we see happening in the West. And once again, the starting multiple is, you know, let's call it 12 times. And, uh, and that's, that's quite low. I mean, it means you're getting a, a pretty big margin of safety. And you, know, you could say geopolitical concerns are there, but they're also, we would argue, 
being, um, you know, you're being compensated for that with a very high equity risk premium um, in Chinese or emerging market exposed equities. Jacob, that's a great segue into the portfolio. How is the portfolio broadly positioned against the backdrop of the macro that we've that we've been discussing so far? Look, we we you know have been relatively constructive, if you like, on um, the opportunity set in the sense that you still have this very high multiple dispersion in the market. And that's allowed us, I think, to, to navigate the environment. And we've also, you know, been um, purposely, if you like, expressing that, you know, that that um, our views in more defensive opportunities as the, you know, as we've gone through over the past twelve months, because we've seen this slowdown coming, and our view was that, you know, more, let's call it, defensive attractively valued stocks would start to outperform let's call it attractively valued cyclicals cyclicals did very well up to a point and then the baton was passed to to more defensive parts of the market and we really sort of i think captured that that transition and what does that mean it means we've we added you know over the past 12 months we've added into you know healthcare stocks like sanofi and merck have done very well um Staples like Diageo and Heineken have had become bigger weights in the portfolio, and then in the in the software part of the market or some of the the platform what we call the platform part of the market, um, Meta has been a bit of a you know obviously a, an interesting ride, but we've stayed the course there and benefited from a rebound and you know an improvement in execution in the company, and then we've got the SAPs and Oracles which the market's rediscovering and they were, you know, they were very cheap for the quality of the companies that they were and the perfect companies for, a, you know, an economic slowdown and one which was, you know, being characterised by sticky inflation because they have, you know, together with Microsoft, they've got this amazing amount of pricing power, customer lock, and that wasn't being reflected in their starting, starting multiples. Um, look, in terms of cyclicals, we're not, we're not saying you have to become completely defensive or you know there's clearly going to be you know in that cyclical area out though the preference would be to find a a company that is becoming you know maybe less cyclical or transition transitioning to a more structural growth profile and we see that in the you know the energy transition onshoring infrastructure exposed companies these were the these are the companies that will will take over i think from mega cap tech as tomorrow's secular winners stocks like um yeah siemens energy um um, well i mean tsmc is a tech company but i think it also fits the you know fits that description and uh look in the case of china as i mentioned we're quite constructive on the you know in on on this economic cycle inflecting and uh, we think it will be led by um, as china slowly reopens out of home services will recover um, and you have companies like Baidu that benefit from that as well as this new, a group of emerging multi Chinese multinationals uh, such as uh, Medea. So on that note, let's move on to the three stocks that we're discussing in this episode and that's Sanofi, Total Energies and Medea. Let's start with Sanofi. It's 
It's been a top holding in the portfolio for some time now. Performance last year was weighed down by litigation issues, but we've had some positive news on that front, haven't we? That, that's, that's right. There was an over-the-counter drug, Zantac, which was, look, Sanofi was a, only associated with as a result of an acquisition and it, was a, it wasn't Sanofi's drug. It was a drug that Sanofi distributed and, um, and that was you know, more than five years ago um, and there were issues with the, let's call it, the, the quality of that in terms of the manufacturing quality of that drug. And, you know, Sanofi had already withdrawn the drug from the market in 2019. So it was, um, this was a known issue. In spite of that, $18 billion was wiped off the stock's market cap uh, when, when uh, the first court hearing approached last year. Now, we, we felt the market was acting irrationally and assessed the impact would be closer to, be, you know, $1 to $2 billion. And... Um, and you know, a reasonable profitability that many of the lawsuits would be ultimately dismissed. Now, a ruling at, in favour of Sanofi at the end of last year has meaningfully, we think anyway, meaningfully de-risked the investment and it's been a positive catalyst for, you know, for a rebound in the company. And, uh, and that, you know, the share price has pushed through to its prior highs in, in, in the last few months. Sanofi's is the largest position in our portfolio because we think you know that litigation issue is actually relatively minor compared to the cash flows of the company and and the probability of any you know any really significant adverse outcome and it's a company that's you know fairly insensitive to the economic cycle it's not facing any material patent cliff in its pharmaceutical uh, business and it has a lot lower, let's call it drug price risk, you know, in terms of its exposure to in the US to uh, you know, drugs where you could make the case that the pharmaceutical company was gouging. You know, that's not Sanofi. So we, we think it's relatively immune to drug repricing risk that will ultimately you know, will happen in the US. You know, as as Congress faces you know its own budget pressures, this will come, you know, this will be a risk. And, you know, we think we're relatively protected from that. Um, and look, the pharma business is growing by, you know, increasing penetration of its existing drugs, opportunities in its rare disease business where companies, where competition is, is a lot lower. And, uh, and we think generally the pipeline is underappreciated by the market. Now, on top of that, we really like the, the fact that one third of revenue comes is from non-pharmaceutical businesses you know long duration businesses like vaccines where Sanofi is one of the three major players in the flu market uh, and it also has a you know a leading you know, consumer health business you know a consumer health health as in over the counter um, over the counter products products that aren't don't you know aren't exposed to patent issues they're already off patent uh, and look it's a business that's growing earnings at high single digit which when you think about that in the context of only paying a P multiple of 12 times and the defensiveness of those earnings, you know, it, it seems like a really, for us anyway, what we love in all of our investments, which, you know, a very high uh, margin of safety and, and multiple ways of winning. 
Another stock I wanted to to discuss with you today was French-listed oil and gas major Total Energies, which is also another um, large position in the portfolio. And I think this is one of those cyclicals uh, that fits into that category of cyclical with secular growth opportunities. We've been constructive on gas for some time, given the role gas will play in the journey to carbon zero. Now, energy prices have softened on concerns around recession, So it would be great to get your outlook on supply and demand and energy prices. And also, if you could touch on Total's role in energy transition. Yeah, look, a little bit to unpack there. Um, But, you know, it is a, you know, when you think about Total Energies, look, we don't think it's going to become, you know, the next, um, you know, chat GPT secular grower. Um, But... It is a company, I think, that has, you know, sort of some interesting aspects to it in in, a, in terms of st- structural growth that are underappreciated by the market. Um, look, for just touching on the oil market to begin with, you know, we've gone through a period of underinvestment in conventional energy, you know, by the oil and big, you know, the, the large cap oil and gas producers due to a bunch of issues. You know, you've had, you know, ESG pressures for these companies not to invest. They had relatively weak balance sheets as they were recovering from a period of excess spend. And there was a, you know, shareholders quite rightly were scarred by that experience and were pressuring and continue to pressure these companies for returns, cash returns, shareholder returns rather than capital investment. And, you know, oil and gas capex, if you think about majors like Exxon and Shell, the two largest conventional producers, it's been below depreciation for some time. Uh, Exxon's focused on shareholder returns um, and uh, and Shell is committed to this you know, balance of shareholder returns and investment in renewables. But let's take the, the market, you know, demand. History shows that a meaningful recession in the US would take demand down by around 2 million barrels per day. Now, offsetting that is China's consumption of oil has been running about one and a half million barrels below trend due to lockdown and minimal international flights. So we can see a a situation where high demand from China's reopening can somewhat offset contraction from a severe recession. And we think globally, gas will continue to be well bid as, you know, an important stepping stone um, as economies seek to to decarbonise. And look, we also have the fact that, um, you know, basically Russia, Russian gas is somewhat, somewhat landlocked, you know. Um, so not Europe got through the winter with some good fortune in regards to the weather. But, you know, it's arguably as a lot of the LNG cargoes that were diverted to Europe, a lot of them came out of Asia. And if Asia and the Northern Hemisphere, as China reopens, we think there'll be greater There'll be less of those cargoes to divert. And also if we have a more normal winter, that will tighten up, arguably could tighten up the global LNG market. Um, and that's that's not currently priced in. Uh, look, why Total? Like we think, um, so, you know, in summary, we, we think, you know, the, the market will remain relatively tight and energy, energy prices supported even in a recessionary environment, which is quite different to, you know, to what we've had in the past. And, you know, the big difference being just the lack of investment to grow, to grow output. Total, just, you know, to bring it, you know, to bring it back to where we started, it's continued to invest in, and um, so it will grow output. 
its upstream business is fairly evenly split between oil and gas. And investment-wise, about half of its capex is focused on oil with the other half a balance of gas, renewables, hydrogen and other transition technologies. So it's out of the majors, you could make the case that it has you know, the best and most balanced growth portfolio and the stock is available on a, you know, a 13% free cash flow to equity at today, today's oil price. So I think once again, you've got you know, a relatively large margin of safety against multiple ways of winning. And finally, what about Medea? This is one of the dominant air conditioning manufacturer in, in China, or certainly one of the dominant air conditioning manufacturers in China, with a growing international business. What opportunities do you see for this company? Yeah, look, it's, um, it's, a, it's a part of a, let's call it an emerging cluster, Medea, in our portfolio of as we call them, emerging Chinese multinationals. So we, you know, we were also, you know, constructive on a company called Sani Heavy, which is, you know, very dominant in excavators. And, uh, and look, it's, it is a reality that China has, um, given the size of its, you know, its home market, its home market today is roughly the same size as the US's home market. So it's going to have companies that, have domestic scale and those companies are now pushing into international markets and um, you you might think air conditionings are boring but at the end of the day there's there's a real need to drive efficiency in air conditioning because of its you know it's it's a major draw on energy and in a world where we're trying to you know where the energy transition and efficiency is the way we use energy is going to continue to be a real you know, really important that we continue to drive efficiency, you are getting these, you know, these dominant companies that have competitive advantage dominate market shares. And, you know, Medea is one, one such company. And uh, look, you get, I think, in the shorter term, you get the benefit of a, you know, a rebound in the Chinese economy, um, a rebound in, in property and just consumer, let's call it consumer sentiment, consumer spending. You have surplus savings, roughly... 14% of, of current, current expenditure um, as a result of lockdowns that will get deployed. And uh, so you have a cyclical recovery opportunity at the same time that you know, this company is really demonstrating that ability to capitalise on, uh, you know, on export sales. Uh, it is also a company that has, you know, it's in addition to its air conditioning business, it, you know, it has a, a robotics business. Um, and it's a very well-run private firm and um, you know, it's sort of been quite innovative in its go-to-market strategies. You know, has a, you know, has a direct, effectively a direct-to-consumer type business and uh, it's a business that we think can sustainably grow at around 10% per annum and it's available on a multiple of, a, of um, let's call it you know, 12 times uh, this year's earnings. You know, which is which is pretty attractive for a you know a high return on capital, steady you know relatively high growth steady grower, and uh, and hence uh, you know yeah we 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 see it as quite an interesting investment. So to wrap that up, we have a big cap farmer, a conventional energy business with a transition angle that's being ignored by the market, and an emerging Chinese multinational that will benefit from a domestic recovery that is also capitalising on international opportunities. 
three very different businesses, very different opportunities that are suited to the current environment. But what about pressure points? Earlier in the podcast, we discussed commercial real estate as an area to watch. Where else do you see risks emerging? Yeah, that divergence, I think, in policy, um, you've got, let's call it probably the, the positive leg of that, as we mentioned earlier, China, you know, it's ex- where you've seen, you know, seeing the benefits of easing. Um, you've got the US, which is at the other extreme, where you've got really, really tight policy. And then the rest of the world is somewhere in between, you know, where central banks in uh, Europe and uh, Australia, for example, haven't matched the Fed one for one on hikes. And so, and look, we think, you know, and we're starting to see, you know, we're starting to see these issues like regional banks. We don't think the regional bank crisis in the US is over, right? As I, as I said, we, we, we think you're going to see pressure on, you know, pr- pressure on capital and pressure on profits and, um, and deposits will continue to reprice. And we have the backdrop of the the debt ceiling, which will add, you know, add add to the add to the let's call it complexity, and um, and then the question will be, will you know, what happens? Do the non-US Western central banks do they have to catch up, or does the Fed, you know, is the Fed too tight? You know, what what gives? And the evidence at the moment is the Fed's too tight, but I think there's a you know we'll meet somewhere in the middle. And uh, we, we haven't really, you know, we, we know that's putting pressure on economies where there's lots of variable rate debt. And, uh, you know, in the, in the US, the household is protected, right, because the mortgage is a fixed rate. And that's why the pressures are being felt in the banking system. In most of the rest of the Western world, um, the, the lift in policy rates is, is being passed on by the banking system to the household, right? So the pressure is being felt in the household, which is very different to, you know, to what's happening in the US. Um, so, uh, you know, we would be concerned about economies where there's a whole a high level of household debt and large exposure to variable rate mortgages. Uh, you know, that describes Australia, the UK, Canada, Sweden, and, uh, and, nor- and parts of Northern Europe more generally. Uh, you know, these, the households and the household sector in these markets, especially ones that have a lot of leverage, are going to, you know, are going to be challenged. And, um, and it really, you know, it does, you know, when inflation in Sweden and the UK is still running at 10 to 11%, that's, you know, it's a comp- that's, a, that's a tricky environment. Even, you know, and Australia is not out of the woods yet. You know, even, even if inflation's at six, it's still six. So... Those policymakers in those markets are, you know, they're really faced with that unfortunate or challenging choice between addressing inflation, supporting currencies with higher rates, or supporting the household and, and property prices and protecting the economy. So, look, we think, you know, the range of outcomes is pretty wide. And probably from a, a tail risk perspective, the key thing is to look for cheap ways of hedging you know, hedging some of those risks. And, uh, you know, we do see we do see those opportunities. And, uh, you know, we're thinking about, you know, you know, for example, what does it mean in the case of, our, of the Australian economy as a, as a microcosm of this, this pressure on households? And, um, and, um, and ultimately how that plays out with banking 
profitability and um, given that you know Australian banks are, are, are large in a global context in terms of market cap and that's pr- primarily pr- you know uh, because of the level of household debt in the economy not so much because of the size of the economy but just the level of household debt in the economy and the multiples that the banks trade on here so um, yeah I think it's you know watch you know, which are which are which are very high. You know, and, and on a price to tangible book basis, the Australian banks relative to, to global banks are close to their all time relative relative high valuations. So yeah, um, it's uh, the, probably the other bigger issue is just currencies. You know, as that policy divergence starts to narrow, either because the Fed cuts or the rest of the world catches up with with rate hikes. You know, you would see we would, you know, we would imagine the dollar, US dollar, would ultimately, you know, weaken against other, you know, other Western currencies. And the team has been doing some interesting analysis on the Australian bank, so I think watch the space, Jacob. Let's leave it there. Thanks for another great quarterly update. Excellent. Thanks, Alison. A pleasure as always. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you can get an alert when the next episode goes live in a few weeks. For further information on Antipodes, head to our website, antipodes.com, and you can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. The content in this podcast is general information only. It is not advice of any kind and doesn't take into account your personal financial situation, objectives or needs. You should seek professional advice before making any financial decisions. Stock commentary is illustrative only and not a recommendation to buy, hold or sell any security.